This week on Behind the Idea, we go beyond our usual approach as we look at Ray Dalio's argument that a paradigm shift is coming and his hinted conclusion that going long gold is one way to prepare. Gold remains an ungraspable topic for some, and I found myself on the investing therapist's couch during our discussion. I don't get it. I I understand it's a fact of human history, but am I to just throw up my hands and accept it? I don't understand why that should be any more than Bitcoin or anything else. Mike looked at the situation from a more constructive and instrumentalist point of view. You don't know when that'll be, but you want to kind of have your portfolio immunized against financial shocks as much as you can. If gold seems to be a way to do that, then why ask too many questions? Peter Lynch famously said, if you spend 13 minutes a year analyzing economic and market forecasts, you've wasted 10 minutes. But Ray Dalio is one of the more renowned minds in investing, and when he cranks up the writing to say a change is coming, it's worth listening. So should investors brace for an impact? And is the little yellow metal the right way to do so? We discuss on Behind the Idea. Welcome to Behind the Idea. I'm back and I'm fired up. I'm Mike Taylor. And I'm Daniel Schwartzen. Today we're doing something a little bit different. Today we are going to explore a new topic. We normally talk about individual securities on Behind the Idea. We talk about company-specific risk and company-specific opportunity, mostly in In fact, I think just about only in stocks. Today, we are stepping up to the portfolio risk management level, and we're talking about an asset class driven idea. So, of course, we're talking about gold. And Bridgewater CIO Ray Dalio's recent article titled Paradigm Shifts in which he argues that gold is likely to start outperforming other asset classes sometime in the next few years. I really love this article. I'm kind of a Ray Dalio fan. When I was applying to a job years ago, I actually put in my cover letter that I was a big admirer of Ray Dalio and uh, did not (laughs) get called for an interview in that application. But Anyway, I'm, I think Dalio is smart. I think Bridgewater is an interesting firm. We'll get into that. But I like this article so much that I did something I've never done before and I bought gold. And so now I am a gold bug. Daniel thinks gold is stupid. So this should be a fun podcast. Before we get started, though, Behind the Idea is the podcast where we discuss investment ideas from the Seeking Alpha ecosystem to find out what makes great investment analysis work. Seeking Alpha, our employer, is the platform where investors from around the world, even luminaries like Ray Dalio, share their ideas and analysis. As ever, nothing on this podcast should ever be taken as investment advice of any sort. 
I am long gold and gold-related securities via the GLD, GDX, and GDXJ ETFs. Daniel does not admire me for these positions, and I believe has no positions in any securities we intend to discuss. And a final disclosure, I've been away for a couple of weeks. Uh, my wife was having a baby, so I'm now a father and a proud Ooh. owner of gold to <laughs> life-altering events. <laughs> in a monumentous few weeks for you, Mike. Yes. Congratulations. Really, really. Two major, a lot of liability changes on the liability side of my balance sheet and, and a minor asset shift. So, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, it's, I'm glad you cleared that up right away because I think listeners were worried that you had somehow been pushed out of the podcast for your purchase of gold ETFs. I think oh. listeners, <laughs> we don't do that here. We're, I don't, I don't think Mike is stupid to do this. To each his own. But I think it, <laughs> we're going to yeah, try and aim yeah. for peaceful coexistence at the beginning and, of the podcast, at least. Loyal, loyal listeners will remember that Mike does this about once a summer. He gets itchy and talks about gold. We talked. He talked with quoth the Raven last summer. And that got to gold. So yeah, actually, a similar argument between Ray Dalio and Quote the Raven. Really, the argument's fairly f- familiar overall, which I think is interesting and maybe something we can get into. So yeah, yeah. why don't you? Why don't you? You've you've kind of this your well, no, I'm not going to use that line, but this is your your favorite article. Why don't you go into this? What what did you like? What stood out? Okay, so I did. Yeah, let's start there. Uh, I so I dove in. It's true. I dove into this article. I really kind of immersed myself in it. I created spreadsheets. I did all sorts of things. The argument is basically that the article is titled "Paradigm Shifts," and Dalio makes the argument that there is a paradigm shift coming. Basically, every decade is associated with a certain way of thinking about investing and a certain set of investor behaviors and regulatory behaviors. And that these things shift over time because the paradigm becomes overstretched, too pervasive, the trades become too crowded, and things revert back to the mean. And this creates different price action across different asset classes. The specific argument to today's era is that too many people are levered long financial assets. And for our purposes, I'm going to define financial assets as cash, uh, bonds, and stocks. So the whole world is basically overexposed to these assets. And this asset allocation behavior is supported primarily by central bank policy that's unsustainable and will eventually break down. When that happens, when the dynamics eventually break down, uh, asset class prices are going to shift dramatically uh, because investors will begin to see a different set of risks and opportunities in front of them. And he doesn't get into great detail about why gold would benefit from these dynamics, but he does recommend gold. So that's the overall argument. There's a shift coming and gold's going to benefit. And we'll talk about why he thinks that in a second. But um, Daniel, what do you think? What do you think 
What's your first reaction to this argument? I think it's, it is a change of pace from what we normally do from where I normally, I read a lot about the economy, but I don't beyond worrying about valuations and I've worried about valuations for the last five years for better or worse. I don't usually think in big macro themes. And so it's refreshing to have somebody who spent some time on it. I teased a little bit. He does a little bit of throat clearing at the beginning to explain how he's done his research that could have been a sentence instead of a paragraph or two, but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. Yeah, (laughs) I know more about the most recent decades than the decades that are earlier because I've lived through them as an investor. But I know something about the decades before I was born because my parents lived through them and other people have told me about them. And then I have some knowledge of the Renaissance until (laughs) the 20th century. It is, I think it's, his heart's in the right place there. He's trying to disclose his level of confidence about everything um, that he's about to discuss. And that's admirable from a sort of intellectual honesty perspective. It is a total slog to read through a paragraph where he explains how and why he thinks he knows how much he knows. And this maybe gets into people make fun of Bridgewater a lot because they have this kind of corporate culture about radical transparency and being honest about how smart you think someone else is, your coworkers are, and uh, trying to be as rational as possible in all your interactions and all your uh, communications. And I think that's coming through here. That's not the way normal people talk to each other or try to communicate ideas most of the time. I think it shows that Ray Dalio is, for all his great insights that he provides here, he's not your sort of He's not your average bear in terms of going out and having a beer, maybe. I think the I think it gets a lot better. First of all, the writing gets better, and it is a, it's a compelling argument. I think the decades are a little bit of a crutch, like two thousand to two thousand ten. I don't think of as roaring, and I don't. You know, we survived the two thousands already. I don't think that was a really. I know it was the housing bubble, but it was. But whatever, that doesn't matter. The general construct of there are these paradigms, they tend to more or less evolve on these 10-year cycles. It's compelling. I think the analysis is good. I think we can get into the questions of what to do and what comes next. I think that's still left open. And I think one of the big topics that I'd mentioned to you before also is this idea of is – if everything's just a cycle and everything's sort of a self-correcting mean reverting system of sorts, I I think a lot of a speech I read by George Soros who talked about reflexivity in the markets. And I think that's very profound and applies to economics in general. What does that, is that the right, is it always that, or is there any sort of secular changes that are fundamentally moving the ground on which these cycles interact and so that's that's the that was something i was thinking yeah good so let's like start i think that's a good place to start kind of is the idea of paradigms and how much we sort of buy into dalio's initial table setting framework here that 
and why we might or might not believe in paradigms. So I think you've raised one sort of problematic, potentially problematic aspect of his argument, which is paradigms go in decades. And uh, he's argued in the past that um, the average economic cycle is about seven years. Obviously, our current cycle is extending far beyond that. But he does have this kind of, he tries to assign a specific sort of wavelength to economic cycles. And I don't, I think if we, you know, sat down with him and said, Ray, come on, it's not like the cycle started in 2000 and then ended in 2010. He would say, of course not, right? Like it probably actually started at the bottom of the dot-com recession, which was sometime I think in 2001. And it probably ended at the bottom of the housing crash, which was sometime early 2009, let's say. So that's actually like more of an eight year cycle or whatever. I think more than that, he's just trying to capture periods of alignment. They don't necessarily map onto exact decades. He also mentions that there are counter trend rallies or dips that occur within any paradigm. So that kind of makes it more fuzzy, right? That sort of reduces the explanatory power or the specificity of his uh, framework, but also makes it robust to that kind of objection. So I think the decades thing is like, yeah, but, but also talking about reflexivity, people tend to think in decades, right? And so it wouldn't be crazy for this human behavior to have actually some impact on the way the economy is structured. Like, we're going to party like it's 1999, 2000 happens, everyone's looking for a new era to begin. And I think that happens every decade. People look back at the past 10 years, assess what happened, and they look forward to the next 10 years and try and figure out what's going to happen next. And people reposition themselves accordingly. I mean, even on Seeking Alpha, and this isn't rational, but I think it may be an influence on sort of an argument for why the decade framework might work a little bit is... You know, we do a portfolio positioning series at the end of every year of Seeking Alpha where people take stock of the past year. That's an arbitrary demarcation that happens, you know, in the wintertime in the nor Northern Hemisphere. Uh, but, you know, time is an illusion, man. But we still Shout kind out of to our Southern Hemisphere listeners. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. hope your winter is going fun. okay. Your summer reevaluation re re of strategy is really, I wouldn't be able to do it. It's too nice outside. But. <laughs> But you get what I'm saying, like this gets into reflexivity and like we we create these things and all these system, the system alignment and realignment is a function of human behavior. It's not like it has to be a law of nature for it to work. Well, I think sense? it does. And I think that's where you talked about hurting either right now or in your notes and all these paradigm shifts and the whole idea of uh a paradigm playing out such the point that everybody just assumes it will continue until it doesn't. And I buy that. And I think that is, I think it's worth remembering that we are humans, that ec economics is not like physics, not like chemistry. It's definitely based on human behavior. And one of the big breakthroughs in e economics over the last few decades has been the understanding that this rational expectation, this rational utility maximizing econ person is not a reflection of how the world works. And so 
Um, I think that definitely plays out in markets, and I think that's where. So yeah, I I buy. I don't think we need to fixate on the decades per se, but I buy what you're saying about this sort of reflection that comes at the end of a given decade. I think also what's interesting to me is, as an example, we've talked about SaaS stocks quite a lot on the podcast recently. And you think about, even with the machines and the onset of algorithmic trading, I was looking at a few stocks this week where they missed earnings or they missed their guidance by a million dollars or something. And we're talking about less than a percent. And they sold off 30% because machines are still set up based on these sort of rules. And so the reflexivity is actually stronger to some degree. And so they're still programmed by humans and there's still that sort of automatic nature to it. So yeah, I, I buy that. I think the paradigm shift makes sense. And I guess, I don't know if you want to go into the specifics of what he's arguing, but it seems to me like he's what he's saying, as you said at the top, is familiar. It's we're, we're adding debt. We're, I, I thought he had a few interesting nuances here, but essentially we're adding debt. Interest rates are actually, despite recent efforts, going downward. And that is leading to something which equity assets and similar equities and similar assets are getting priced higher and higher, but forward looking returns are becoming less attractive. And so I guess that's. Is that how you understood his analysis of the current par- paradigm? And then what what is he sort of saying about what happens next? Uh, yeah. So before we get there, I just want to quickly stop. And you mentioned some like psychological bias and stuff, and it called to mind. There was a pull quote from a recent Daniel Kahneman interview where he said he's no longer interested in happiness because his findings... And Kahneman is one of the leading sort of prospect theory people who have sort of broken down the concept of the rational utility maximizer in economics. He's pioneering, I think, a Nobel Prize winner with Amos Tversky. You can read Michael Lewis's book, The um, Unraveling Zone. Undoing <laughs> The Undoing Project, I think. <laughs> Even if he's unhappy and is unraveling, I think it was called The Undoing Project. The Undoing Project, not the Unraveling Zone. Sorry. (laughs) Or Michael Lewis. Yeah, yeah, or or Michael Lewis. Anyway, he said that happiness doesn't explain human behavior as well as the quest for meaning. So we're still in an era where we don't really understand how people behave as well as we thought we did when the rational economic actor took hold. And to springboard off that idea... I want to talk quickly about why paradigms might work. And we mentioned Daniel brought up herding, which is, you know, people can tend to imitate other people's behavior. And that's true in the investing world. It's true elsewhere. Another cognitive bias that people have is sort of recency bias or immediacy bias, where what's immediately available is perceived as more probable than than is rational to believe. Dalio actually explicitly mentions a similar type of thing where he says in his article that investors start to tend to believe that what's most recently been true is what's most likely to happen in the future. And I think that's a very elegant way of kind of describing the basis of these behaviors, these paradigms. 
And I think it's also interesting that he says kind of that the idea of how the economy is structured or ought to be structured sort of permeates throughout the entire system. It's not just investors. It's also regulators and policymakers and everyone else sort of falls into some kind of equilibrium. And I think that that's persuasive and compelling. I think that's why we see such great volatility in the stock market, for example, is because one idea takes hold and it works for a long time. And then eventually people just abandon the idea. And then that whole sort of trading pattern unwinds. Into the argument about what's going on today in 2019. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of a tough argument and I spent a lot of time sort of trying to power through it. I'll try and walk a little bit step by step. So we're in an environment today where this is Dalio's argument, at least the rise in prices of financial assets has been explained to a great degree by the behavior of central banks. And that's mostly in response to the Great Recession and the crash of 2008. Basically, central banks intervened on two major levels. They reduced interest rates to near zero, which does have historical precedent. And Dalio mentions that in response to the Great Depression, a similar thing happened. Interest rates approached zero. And they also embarked on quantitative easing, which is basically the printing of money to finance purchases of assets with longer maturities. So mortgage securities, long dated government bonds, things that typically would command higher interest rates because they're longer dated. Central banks effectively tried to lower interest rates across the entire yield curve by on the short end, lowering the effective interest rate. And then on the long end, by buying these securities. And that has had a lot of effects. The investment world has basically adapted to this environment. And there have been real world consequences to this kind of central bank behavior and intervention in financial markets. When interest rates are low, that means that you can only expect a certain level of return on assets. Another thing that happens is price and expected return interest rates fluctuate in inverse. So if you lower interest rates, then there's a price in impact on interest bearing securities and that price impact is upward. And some of the things that have happened then is the other, the other consequence is the one that's sort of more easy to understand intuitively, which is just that low interest rates make it easier to borrow. So people borrow more money and that has had consequences uh, throughout the world in terms of, you know, people, companies are borrowing money to repurchase their stocks. We have a ton of stock buyback discussion in the financial press all the time. And for better or for worse, that's kind of related to this phenomenon. And buybacks further support stock prices. Then there's a twist on the argument, which is that that's financial assets are owned by investors. But on the other side of that transaction is the people who receive the investment capital. 
And so in the, in terms of debt securities, that means there are borrowers and people who borrow money, do things like start businesses, they buy homes, they go to college, they do whatever, whatever economic activities they do. And these low interest rates have facilitated a lot of borrowing. And Dalio's argument, I think, is that there's going to come a time where the return on those financial investments from the investor side is insufficient to support the prices that those assets are currently marked at. And so the price and the value of financial assets is going to have to decline one way or another. And there are a couple of different ways that that can happen. One is that the investors will just sell off these assets and look for something better. So then interest rates will go up because the fixed income will stay the same, but the prices will be lower. Another way that this could happen, I think what Dalio thinks is the most likely way that this is going to unfold is that financial securities are denominated in cash, meaning that they're basically agreements for some stream of cash payments to happen in the future. The central bank and governments are going to have a hard time imposing taxes to support borrowers who have taken on a ton of debt. They're going to have a hard time negotiating when creditors default. And so the smoothest path forward for policymakers will be simply to depreciate their currencies. They'll reduce the value of the cash that is returned to the investors and the investors will still get a haircut. The creditors will still get a haircut and the debtors will get relief, but it'll be via this sort of monetary action of printing additional money. That results in a devaluing of currency and a devaluing of all financial assets. There will be nowhere to hide except in certain instruments and Dalio points to gold as the primary instrument. So I think that's the, the argument about where we are today. My first reaction is I heard David Einhorn make this argument in 2010, 2011. Gold returns over the past decade haven't been phenomenal. Uh, I heard Quoth the Raven make this argument uh, multiple times throughout the course of last year. It's what's interesting to me is that Dalio, who's sort of this amazing critical thinker, has set up this whole principles of how to think rationally. He's it's not maybe a consensus view, but it is a consensus view, given that you're bullish gold. So I think that's something that's sort of sticking with me right now. It's like his narrative is not that different from what other gold bugs might say. What do you think? One thing I'd give him credit for that I think, I think where I would, I don't know the history, but I would argue the pejorative gold bug comes in part from what goes alongside owning gold, which is oftentimes distrust of the world and this feeling of, and I know I'm projecting and feel free to yell at me, but just injustice in the world. And this is how things should be. And it's the same way that people complain about the Fed. Mm. I, I actually have kind of lost the thread on what people are complaining about the Fed now. Is the Fed cutting too slowly or, or, or but, you know, the perma bear approach of, oh, the markets should do this. The Fed should raise rates because that's what it's supposed to do. And this sort of hard fastness, which to me is just 
it's not even it's worse than talking your book in some degree because it's just I want to I want the world as I see it and I don't think Dalio is doing that here I think he's analyzing yeah. he's making a call he's not saying this is what should happens he talks relatively dispassionately about you know at some point socialists and capitalists are going to argue about how the best way to approach this is etc like so that that I think is one thing and I he said he by the way, promises, I don't know if he's posted yet, he promises to later post about why gold. And so I guess we're missing that piece of the puzzle. But that's what sticks out to me. And I guess two things stick out to me in all of this is beyond the cyclical thing I mentioned earlier is that he says this is going to be like the 1940s. But if you look at his charts on, you know, in the 1940s, obviously it had the world war two. So hopefully we don't have world war two, but, or three, but <laughs> we can't have world war two, Daniel. It's too late for that. Too late. I don't think any historian is going to say, <laughs> and then world war two continued in 2019. I think that we've closed the book on world war two. Well, we you know, with the Navy, with the Navy, uh, customs and sequels these days, it could be world war two, the second or something like that. Uh, World War 2.0. That's kind of funny. <laughs> <laughs> we, I digress. Anyway, hopefully we don't have war. I think that's a safe statement. But <laughs> there is the otherwise the world, if you look at it and abstract the horror, horrors of that decade, it was a lot of, it, it was when the Great Depression finally really ended. Like there was a lot of recovery. Obviously, Europe suffered greatly and, and that obviously set them back another decade or so, if not more. But anyway, so in his charts show that gold doesn't do very well in that climate. And so I think that's interesting. I know I'm drawing that conclusion too literally, more literally than what he was going for. I, I'm sure of that, but still curious about that. And then I'm just, I still don't, I don't think gold is stupid. It's not that. <laughs> I'm just not I, terribly... I mischaracterized your views. Well, you, look, we have to attract re- listener attention at the beginning. No, but it's, it's, it, no it's, I'm sure a, somebody who believes in gold would already be mad at me. So it's like, I don't think it's wrong to go in that angle. But it's not that I think it's stupid. It's I don't understand it and I don't find it all that interesting. Uh, I don't have curiosity around it. The way studying... I, I, I enjoy studying stocks and businesses... when I have the time and energy to do so because I can understand why I would earn money from it. Like I understand the philosophy behind you will eventually have a share of their earnings, potential dividends, whatever else that makes sense to me. I enjoy it because I can, I can, I enjoy it because it's a competition. You're sort of trying to outthink the market. And I enjoy it because it's a lens to understand the world because you're learning about companies. You're seeing what's happening in the world. It's just another way to understand the world. And so all of those things, gold doesn't really give me except for the psychology and the sentiment around it. And so I guess my question to you is you shared a chart with me that shows how gold and stocks, equity returns, and you might have had bond returns in there as well, correlate. And it's very much not correlated. And basically, the winner depends on when you set your start point and end point, as you said several times. But like, what what is it about gold? Why should gold, you know, I was gonna, the, the little yellow metal, the little yellow metal, why, why is that? 
like, I don't get it. I, I understand it's a fact of human history, but am I t- to just throw up my hands and accept it? I don't understand why that should be any more than Bitcoin or anything else. Like, why do we as human? I understand we're humans and we're going to whatever, but why do we accord such value to gold such that it seems to play this way? It has been playing this way recently, and it seems to play this way as sort of a counterweight to things that I, I understand better. Yeah, yeah. I don't know Dalio's answer to that. He promised to give that answer later. Given the way he structured his argument right now and given what we know about him in general, I'll set this up with a quote. I think he was in an interview with Barry Ritholtz on his podcast, and he said, uh, I came away with this great, groundbreaking, very simple insight, which is if you get positive expected returns with zero correlation or low correlate, I think you said zero correlation. If you get uncorrelated positive expected returns, the portfolio impact of that type of asset, adding that asset to your portfolio is just so beneficial that that's what you should be looking for. And so what I think that reveals about Dalio is that certainly he goes through a long explanation here of the sort of economic and behavioral drivers that create these phenomena and these paradigms and how they affect asset prices and how those asset prices then interact with sort of real world transactions. And he talks about creditor and in and borrower behavior and how you cut the pie between those two as a major determinant of investment outcomes. So I'm sure that he has some sort of rationale for Gold's position in all this, but I also think that he thinks statistically and he's a mean variance optimizer much more than he is a security analyzer. And I think that those are two distinct models for evaluating investments And I think that one answer to your question about should I throw up my hands is, and this was what I was getting at showing you that chart, you know, from 1969 to today, uh, gold has had the, it was the S&P 500 chart. I didn't include dividends. So the S&P 500 did outperform gold during that time, even though the chart shows them being relatively similar. The point is gold had very respectable returns over that time frame, and the correlation was zero or even very marginally negative with stock returns. And I think when Dalio says in his essay, one way you can approach these types of paradigm shifts is you can get ready for them and try to make a market call and exploit them. The other is you can just make yourself unexploitable by creating a portfolio that's resilient to these shifts. So it may be as simple, Daniel, as gold has these characteristics. You ought to have some in your portfolio just based on the risk management perspective. You can also see in his table that at certain times gold does outperform other assets You don't know when that'll be, but you want to kind of have your portfolio immunized against financial shocks as much as you can. If gold seems to be a way to do that, then 
why ask too many questions? We could get into some of the explanations that other people offer, but I do think you can stop there. And I don't think that that's a bad move because you also have to ask yourself when you do fundamental analysis, like how much do you really know about the future? How much do you really know about what explains a security's performance or expected performance? I think sometimes you know, but a lot of the times you're making a guess. And I don't know that you need to pretend to convince yourself that you have an edge in gold or that you have a narrative in your mind that totally explains why it does what it does. I bet that's pretty unsatisfying for you. But that's one answer, I think. <laughs> I was almost going to quote Teddy KGV from Rounders. Um, I think you should. Go for it. I'm so unsatisfied, like a wow. young man coming in for a quickie. It was not a. Oh, no. <laughs> it wasn't we need to keep our clean rating, Daniels. It's still clean. It's, it's, I know that's clean. a bad. John Malkovich's Russian accent wasn't great. I could do a better one if we needed to, but. We'll, we'll remake Rounders with you. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, I need to get a little oh, older. <laughs> but, yeah, it's. Look, I think there's a humility there in what you're getting at, which is really appealing to have. But then why not just index? And again, we're talking about time horizons. And I, I think a lot of things, but again, I think about what we were, when I spoke with Tom Watt a couple weeks ago. Oh, I think ago. this is, okay. Go, well, just, yeah, just real quick. Just real quick. When you say why not just index, I think that that's like really important for us to capture is that, uh, Dalio's investment strategy is sort of just indexing taken to its logical extreme. Right. Like you, you diversify across all the asset classes and risk parity is basically what the all weather portfolio is. I think you, it's just looking at the standard deviation of returns on all these things. And so you have cash bonds, equities, gold, whatever else fits in there. You measure the correlations of the returns and then you measure the standard deviation of returns and you target an expected standard deviation that's uh, equal across all the different asset classes and use leverage to get there. So that's like really the ultimate sort of form of indexing is to actually own the entire market at a given risk level. So I think that your objection is kind of like, well, that's the answer is kind of like, well, that's what we're proposing. Right. Yeah. Fair. Well, I think it's, I think I'm going to make a psychological, I was going to say about with Tom Watt about the idea of if you believe in punch card investing, hedging to some degree, doesn't, you want to have some diversity or whatever you want to be risk averse, but hedging sort of cuts off your upside, et cetera. And so that's what I was thinking, but I think there, the psych, we, we've talked about it quite a bit over the length of this podcast over the years or a year and a half about knowing what works for you. And I think that's part of, that's important here too. And because I'm, I'm impressed, for example, Mike, you will often chat with me unprompted 
uh, by any specific podcast or any discussion about market returns. And you'll look at it from this top-down approach and, well, you know, that's the this factor, that factor. And you look at it more analytically and more – and I, you know, I'm not trying to – over-exaggerate at this point, but that's sort of how you described Ray Dalio's approach. It's just, you take the overall picture, you look at the numbers and you go from there. And I characterized, caricatured gold bugs as people who have less trust in the system and who are looking for alternatives and put value in gold as the most common alternative. And again, I would say there's overlap with the Bitcoin stereotype, the stereotype of a coiner, of somebody who owns Bitcoin. And a coiner. Is <laughs> never it, heard that. Well, there's no coiners, right? No coiners? Like never, never, never coiners? Yeah. Never coiners? Yeah. So, well, I think real quick, it's like if you can analyze the cryptocurrencies and determine that they do have positive expected returns, then I think under Dalio's framework, there might just be a simple argument like, okay, throw it in the portfolio. That's kind of. It should have some kind of optimized weight in the portfolio, given its risk reward characteristics. Right. So, yeah. And what I would, so I think that's, a, but I, right. So that's the Dalio approach, which I think is more cerebral and sort of, I'm just going to let the facts lead me. And then what you're, the, I stereotyped the more concerned with the skeptic viewpoint of people who are focused on, Bitcoin or gold. But then I think what I can speak for myself and my psychological profile is somebody who is relatively trusting. I like to do my own work, but I do sort of, and I, I think I have a decent rate, BS radar, et cetera, and it's working seeking alpha helps. But I do tend to believe that the future is generally going to get better. I do tend to take the financial statements as a great starting point to do work. I I, you know, I'm time constrained, so that affects my equity research. But I also enjoy the challenge of trying to pick stocks that will do well. I'm ego driven to a certain degree. And I'm the sort of person, you know, to use one example that I might have used in the past. When I was really into music, I enjoyed finding my own artists or finding communities where I could learn of new artists. And that led me to sort of independent artists more than what you would hear on the radio. And I think that all sort of, so my psychological profile is very attuned for somebody who has sort of a value approach, likes to see the numbers and be able to verify them, but has faith that the future will work out in general, likes to find his own picks, but of course there's going to be some imitation and some copying going on. And so that's uh that's suits my profile and I could, I would need to grow to be able to have the humility to humility is like makes it sound like an insult almost, but like to be able to take, to take an analysis like raise and say, all right, that resonates, right. I'm going to do it more of an all weather portfolio, et cetera. I think that's, I still have, I sort of threatened you with saying this and I'll drop it now. I still sort of have the Peter Lynch phrase of, I spend 10 minutes a year on macro and seven of them are a waste or something like that still lingers in my head. But Peter Lynch also came, you could argue of age in a paradigm where investing in individual stocks could really work and that we're in a different paradigm. So I don't know. That's just sort of what occurs to me as we talk about this. 
Yeah. Okay. Wow. A lot there. Okay. So one thing is, I think that this comes down to some of the very like fundamental discussions that people have. Like Warren Buffett is famously sort of parodied gold and he creates this mental image of just a block of gold sitting in a field somewhere that someone owns and it sits there and the person owns it. The gold doesn't do anything the way that an investment in a corporation would. Uh, an investment in a corporation, you get a group of people together, they collaborate to start a business, and then that business generates profits, and those profits can be returned to the investor in cash. Gold is just an inert metal. That's sort of the Buffett approach to gold. And I think that's tied in with Buffett's sort of assessment of risk and his interpretation of risk, which he says risk is not knowing what you're doing. So his approach is, I'm going to be talented enough that I get positive expected returns out that outstrip the level of risk that I'm taking on. And that's how I'm going to manage my risk. I'm going to make a lot of safe bets because I'm smart enough to find them. The Dalio approach is a hybrid of those. So his pure alpha approach is, okay, gold is a safe bet right now. I've done my homework. I haven't shown it to you yet, but I'll publish an article that shows you clearly the fundamental or the whatever justification is that gold is actually underpriced at the moment or that the time is right to invest in gold. That's pure alpha. And then the all weather is just risk is just variance of returns. All it is, is like, you're going to mostly get positive returns. You're going to sometimes get negative returns and risk is just managing the swings in those outcomes. And that's it. And so I think if you accept that your approach to the markets is dictated by these sort of fundamental assumptions you make about what governs risk, then I think you have to also accept that there are potential limitations to your particular framework because we know that the Warren Buffett security analysis approach to risk has limitations, including how can you be sure that you're as good at managing risk through analysis as Warren Buffett is? How do we know that Warren Buffett wasn't just lucky? Uh, there are objections to that and there's objections on the other side to standard deviation approach, which is, I mean, come on, statistical variance is really the only approach to risk. We do know that, you know, Buffett's right. A company is actually a thing that operates in the real world. It's not a bell curve. So here's my argument to you. If that's true and your approach to risk has to sort of necessarily be limited if you pick one camp or another, then I think that's a powerful argument for the all weather approach, because it says, look, I don't know how much I know. I can do some, I can allocate some to the risk management strategy that's value driven and security analysis driven. And I can allocate some of my assets toward mean variance optimization strategy. This is what a lot of, you know, this is what a lot of pension funds do. This is what a lot of people do. And at the end of the day, you are just a, your portfolio is just a bundle of expected values and variations. 
And so you can't sort of transcend that statistical truism. So I think you can do both. And that would be my argument to you. That's, I think, the most persuasive thing is like, and what I find most persuasive about Dalio's argument is, is simply, in this essay at least, you should own some gold because it has these attractive portfolio characteristics. You don't need to believe anything about it other than that it has these kind of historical properties. And if you want to approach investing with a value approach, then you should allocate some of your portfolio to a value strategy. And in fact, it's probably beneficial to take distinct approaches to risk within a total portfolio, but you're not going to escape the fundamental reality of investment uncertainty. So I think that that's a persuasive argument. It's kind of how I approach my overall portfolio. And Dalio makes a great point and we've seen it like, and I put some charts in there that, um, you know, value factors explain returns really well for a while and then they snap back and don't. And momentum explains returns really well for a while in stocks and then snaps back and it doesn't. You don't know what's going to work in advance. So I think even if you want to be heavily weighted and be 90% in one strategy, I don't think you can read this essay and be persuaded that a shock is not going to happen. I think he does a good job of raising the possibility of a shock to financial assets. Why wouldn't you at least partially insulate yourself from that? Yeah, I hear that. I hear that argument. Oh, come on. It's, I tried. That was a lot. I'm like out of breath over here. That's all I get. <laughs> I really, that was like my full, full no, all I mean out fi fireman blitz. And that's all I got. I didn't. And you just step you, up in the pocket and throw a slant to, do you have Edelman still? I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> it's football season again, isn't it? I watched, dude, I watched the Giants Jets last night, made my wife How'd sit that? on the couch with our newborn daughter and watch the Giants Jets preseason game because I am, I have a problem. <laughs> how, how did our Duke, the Duke grad do the the new quarterback that everybody was mad five at. for five with the touchdown Attaboy. 89 yard drive. I think something like that um, did not look against the number two defense. So I don't know. He like Dalio, his argument did not persuade me that <laughs> he was not correct. <laughs> he left he open the possibility that that was a good draft choice, I guess, at least on the drive I saw. Then we had to go fix some other stuff related to the baby. <laughs> Life took so the no, I, I think it's it's a very thoughtful it, it, yeah, it's a very thoughtful point. I think it's worth more contemplation. I want we're or we should probably wrap soon, but I wanted to ask you about that other thing, which is not necessarily this time is different, because I think that's a dangerous phrase. I, I buy that. And also, I think the if I were to say that, you would rightly or somebody would rightly answer, look, human behavior is human behavior. You can't you can't get around that. And I I agree. I'm not I'm not numb to that. But my question is, is there anything in twenty nineteen where 
I don't think debt to GDP has been this high in the historical, you know, in the time of the U.S. and the time of the modern nation state in so many countries. Interest rates, yeah, they were that low in the 1930s and we recovered, but also the 1930s are not going to be looked back on fondly by too many people that Ray Dalio talked to in his parents' generation. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Ray, we would love to have you on. I'm sorry. It wasn't fair. Don't apologize. He understands. (laughs) (laughs) But the, so the, I don't know. It's just, is there something, is there a reason to think that this mechanism will continue to work, this sort of self-correcting mechanism? Or is there, or is that what his argument is, is that even if it breaks, that's going to be such a shock to the system that you might as well own gold anyhow, because that's what gold does is it's a suspension system for your portfolio. Yeah. I, so he does this, he frames this argument much more clearly than I'm about to try, but basically you can't escape this fundamental aspect of investing in finance, which is whenever someone borrows money, they owe it back to the initial investor and they have to pursue returns that at least match the stream of liabilities they've undertaken by borrowing. The problem is when borrowing becomes uh, looked on as a good thing to do, then, uh, and it's supported by central bank intervention, then interest rates are reduced, which induces borrowing, but that also reduces expected returns on investments. And eventually, investors have to continue to, the borrowers have to try and do activities that sort of support an adequate return on their investment. But there's only, eventually, the world just creates so much value. And so if enough people are lending enough money, they're going to eventually exhaust the sort of earnings generative power of the economy. And some of those people at least are going to end up getting hurt or they're going to try and reallocate into different assets, which will cause price shocks. And I think when you look at things that way, there is a sort of, it seems almost like a truism that there's a mean reverting property to the debt cycle. It's sort of impossible to escape that. And breaking the mechanism. I think he also makes the argument that it doesn't sort of matter how you look at it. It doesn't matter like the debt to GDP ratio could just keep going up indefinitely in theory, but the economic value to the people who are lending the money is going to eventually be reduced. And his argument is the most likely way is through monetization and money printing and devaluing of currencies. Gold is devalued in current is valued in currency, so and doesn't seem to have many other attributes besides that. So, so it's a good play in that environment. I don't, I don't. That second part about what it, 
what if we've totally broken through this sort of cyclical aspect of the economy? I don't, I don't know. That's a question that I have trouble sort of even understanding or wrapping my head around. Fair enough. That probably, given, given the news that you announced at the beginning of the podcast, that probably also makes it when you have a growing family. <laughs> it makes it a little harder to all of a sudden start thinking about collapse, I would imagine. Or Oh, no, I think about it constantly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I like apocalyptic fiction. I, it's like, but I don't know. It's getting a little less easy to enjoy it as pure entertainment these days. Wow, what a great positive <laughs> note. So, Daniel, I... Would you buy some gold, do you think? Could you own some gold? Or do you think you're, it's still not for you? Because my purpose here was to try and convince you, and I don't think I've succeeded, but I want to hear it from you. Yeah, you've made a compelling case. You've made a compelling uh, case, as has Ray. I'm pretty stubborn, Mike. You have to, and again, we, I, I, gave, I put myself on the psychological, on the psychiatrist couch earlier. Okay, fair enough. I forgot to mention that I'm stubborn. I'm pretty stubborn. You didn't acknowledge your yeah, you're acknowledging your limitations, which is a good first step. So I have limitations. I have a lot <laughs> of limitations. Good. Good. I'm work. just not well, sure. We made a lot of progress today, but I think our time's up. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not sure if those You're on the couch and I'm on the chair <laughs> with my notepad. Yeah, send me the send me the bill. I'll 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 handle it. But no, I think it's a. I think there's a lot to unpack here. I think it's good to step back and think more about the world at large, or the not. This wasn't really the world at large. The economy at large. What's going on? Credit to Ray Dalio for compellingly writing about that and getting us to think about it. Credit to you for opening your mind and opening a gold position at, in the instruments you discussed and. Well, yeah. I think the timing, we're not persuaded about the timing. I think we agree on this. Like the market timing piece, which he doesn't address very, he just says in the next couple of years, it's not clear how these dynamics have sort of matured to that point since someone like Einhorn made a similar argument or other people have made the art. Like that part is like, why in the next two years? And I don't, we don't get much about that. We just, so I think that's the part where it's like, I kind of am like, don't try and time the market, but I do think this was a timely article that was interesting that induced me to change my asset allocation for the long term. Thanks for listening to Be Any Idea. We hope you enjoyed it. Have feedback on our drift into the macro? Let us know at btipod at seekingalpha.com. It's summer, so it's time to experiment. We're planning on doing a few more special episodes over coming weeks. Again, you know where to find us if you have any ideas, feedback, or brickbacks. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts if you can. This has been a Seeking Alpha production. Have a great week, and see you next time on Behind the Idea.